would ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the 11th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 11. For about half a dozen reasons or more, we have been not in the book of Jeremiah for more than a month now. Our last message sought to give something of a broad overview of the section beginning in chapter 11. Actually, the section runs to chapter 17, though I didn't really give an adequate overview of all the material. I did focus upon just a a couple of matters. um, And the principal ones had to do with the fact this is a section that addresses the subject of the breaking of the covenant. Um, the, The earlier section had to do with the sins that had to do with the temple and its worship. The question of the desecration of temple worship. And the people of Israel were not only charged with the desecration of temple worship, taking the house of God and turning it into a den of thieves, and for that reason their temple would fall. There was no permanent confidence they ought to have placed in the temple at all. That because they had the temple, and because they could go to the temple to worship, that they could somehow receive absolution from their, their sins when they persisted in their sins, when they were guilty of blatant hypocrisy, uh, flagrantly violating God's covenant law, and then coming to the temple and thinking all was well with them. And so that's the first of the great sins that the people of Israel were guilty of, that is brought upon this judgment of the Babylonian captivity that because of their desecration of the temple, the temple itself would be uh, devastated. The temple itself would be dismantled. They no longer would have a temple. But then also, they're also guilty of covenant breaking, violating the covenant and the terms of the covenant and breaking this covenant relationship that God had entered into with them and it's the cause of their covenant breaking this covenant relationship also would be dismantled again the whole first section of Jeremiah the first 25 chapters are aspects of Jeremiah's ministry of tearing down, plucking up destroying, dismantling uh, all of the things that pertain to the privileges and advantages and benefits that the people of Israel had. And again, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, they did not uh, they did not treasure. They took those things for granted. They uh, abused those tra- those blessings, and hence those blessings were removed, and they themselves were removed from the land and sent into captivity. <coughs> So this is a section that begins with the subject of the broken covenant and also moves into the anguish that Jeremiah himself uh, had in the light of that. Again, Paul experiences anguish in his heart about the sin of Israel. And again, I think that that's uh, so many links that uh, I think exist between Paul's own ministry, uh, how he expresses his ministry, his call his burdens, his hardships, his concerns, um, his sense of calling not to be a Jeremiah in the sense of breaking down and tearing down, but 
building and planting. The authority, he says, the Lord has given us to build up and not to tear down. But yet it's Jeremiah terms that Paul sees his ministry in. And even this anguish of heart that he feels uh, about Israel's plight, Jeremiah feels something similar and enters into these extended lamentations that we find in this section. And again, I pointed out to you, I think the last time, that the great dividing points of the book is this broad formula that's given. We have kind of uh, truncated versions of it, shortened versions of it in other places. But when you see the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, you see that full inscription or that full um, word of um, God speaking, divine speaking, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, that usually is that which introduces a a new section. I think if you go back to chapter 7, you'll see it says that there. I hope I'm right. Yep, there it is. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So all the material from chapter 7 to chapter 11 addresses the question of the dismantling of the temple and the worship of the people of God covenant now that it's a broken covenant and Jeremiah's lamentations in the face of the judgment that will come upon a disobedient people a covenant violating people goes from chapter 11 uh, to chapter 17 and you see chapter 18 that formula again found the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord and we have a new section that addresses another aspect of the advantages and privileges that Israel enjoyed that now is going to be taken from them because of their unfaithfulness uh, to their covenant God. Their unfaithfulness to the God who they were to worship in the temple in purity, be it they desecrated his temple. The God whom they were to be serving with faithfulness and compliance with his covenant. But they broke his covenant by their disobedience and their idolatry. Um, so this begins that whole section and what I want to do is I want to return to the sections this uh, beginning of this section uh, pretty much the first 17 verses this evening and uh, see how this is framed see how the matter of Israel's covenant breaking is framed by Jeremiah see something of the way that he approaches even in his words things that really do echo the book of Deuteronomy. That's what we're, we're going to see. And you know, Jeremiah himself is, is sort of like Moses in the plains of Moab, where in the plains of Moab, it was Moses that was setting forth the covenant terms to the second generation, the generation that would enter into the land of promise. And he's calling them to be faithful. He's calling them to hear God's voice, to obey God's words, that they would enter into the land, that they would possess the inheritance. Jeremiah is like that covenant mediator, who comes to the nation, seeking to renew the covenant with the people, and yet again and again and again he's being rebuffed. And again and again and again, their failure to heed the voice of God comes to the place where there's the point of no return, and that the judgment of God will fall. And in fact, Jeremiah is told, don't even pray for this people. It's so hopeless. But yet, I think we'll see that Jeremiah, though we see the conclusion in chapter 11, that they don't respond, they're not obedient, they are defiant, they're stubborn of heart, and all of the rest. Yet, Jeremiah has been doing this for a long while. 
He's been going to the people with this message for a long while. I don't think it, you know, I don't, I don't think we just to think that okay. Well, after he did the bit in the in the in the temple, uh, preaching the sermon there. Now we're moving on to a new aspect, a new phase of his ministry. No, he's doing this for years and years and years. Remember, go back to uh, chapter one and verse one. Uh, Jeremiah's ministry branched all the way from the reign of Josiah the king. And when Jeremiah was a youth, uh, he says, uh, it's the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, uh, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Amon. Okay, so that was King Josiah who did the reforms uh, when the book of the law was found in the, in, 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 the, in the temple. And Jeremiah was likely a youth in the reign of, Jer- of, of Josiah. And he probably entered into the reforms that were being done. And he is something of the conscience of the nation, as a prophet to the nation, calling them back to God, calling them to faithfulness to the covenant word, to faithfulness to their covenant with God, not relinquishing it, not, not um, refusing it, not engaging in disobedience, but engaging in obedience to their covenant husband, their covenant lord, their covenant king, whom they're called upon to serve. But then it also came in the days of Josiah's successors, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah. And so you have decades of ministry that Jeremiah is engaged in, in the reign of these kings, calling the people back to God, calling them to covenant faithfulness. But the model of it, I believe, was set in the days of Josiah, when the book of Deuteronomy was found in the temple, and it began to be read in the hearing of the people, and the reforms began to be made. Then it was like we were back in the plains of Moab, calling the nation to faithfulness to their covenant God and king. So I think there's something of a Moses kind of ministry that Jeremiah is is given, um, but it's a ministry that he doesn't he doesn't end his end his years as Moses did with the encouragement and confidence. This is a generation tested, tried, faithful to go into the land and possess it. Jeremiah ends up his years with the understanding that everything just came to an end when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and the people were taken into captivity. It was not a good outcome, but yet it was a ministry that he endured in. It was a ministry that he sought to be faithful in. And that it, was, it wasn't his problem that this failed. It was the unbelief of the people that caused his ministry um, to end in lamentations and to end in anguish of heart. But anyway, let's read the first 17 verses, then we'll look to take it apart a bit. We read in 11.1 that the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I command your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord." 
And you know that's from Deuteronomy because it's where the curses are spoken in Deuteronomy. That's the end of each of the curses. So be it, Lord. Why it's translated so be it, Lord, and not really what the word is in the Hebrew, which is amen, amen. That's the word in the original, amen. When the curses were spoken, the people were to say amen. And when God speaks the word of curse against the nation for its disobedience, Jeremiah's response is, Amen, Lord. Verse 6, And Yahweh said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. So again, this is an extensive ministry. This is a ministry through the cities of Judah, through the streets of Jerusalem. This is an ongoing ministry vast regions of territory that he's going to and through a long, lengthy period of time calling the people to covenant fidelity. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, going back again to Deuteronomy, warning them persistently even to this day saying, obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear But everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. So again, in the past the result was not a good one. It was one of judgment, it was one of captivity, it was one of other nations that came to oppress the people of God. Sometimes they called upon the Lord, they found deliverance, but it's never been a very very bright picture of Israel's life as a nation. It's always been filled with disobedience and filled with hardness of heart and filled with failure to incline the ear with everybody walking in the stubbornness of their evil heart. Verse 9 says again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There's a conspiracy. They're actually conspiring against Yahweh, against his people. Uh, against their own best interests. They have turned back to the iniquity of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I'm bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings. But they cannot save them in a time of trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah. I think I quoted this this morning is from Isaiah, but no, it's not. Um, Isaiah says your land is filled with idols, but it's Jeremiah that says your gods have become as many as your cities. O Judah, as many as the streets of Jerusalem. So in every place where Jeremiah is sent to preach, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, in all those places, what's turning up? Not fidelity to the covenant God of Israel, but idols that are being worshipped in those cities, in those streets where Jeremiah is sent to preach. As many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, 
For I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? It's interesting, even at this point, God cannot help but call them his beloved. They're still the object of his affection, the object of his interest and his concern. Oh, that they would turn. Oh, that they would prove themselves to be responsive to his love by loving him in return. But yet, they do not. And what right then has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. Where does Paul get the idea of Israel as the olive tree? Branches that are broken and branches that are grafted in. Where is one place where in the Old Testament, that's what Israel is seen. It's interesting, the pictures that the Old Testament gives of the nation is either that of an olive tree or of a vineyard. In uh, Isaiah 5, it's a vineyard that the Lord plants, and he's looking for good fruit. Uh, he's looking for good grapes, and it comes out, it's not good grapes at all, it's sour grapes, it's an ined- un- inedible grapes. Um, but here it's olives. And you might say, what's the, what's the connection? Why is, why is there this difference? Why is there, in some contexts, olive trees, and in some contexts, grapes? Why sometimes olive groves and other times vineyards? Well, the fact is that in the, ancient, in, the, in the Middle East today, as well as in ancient times, the practice was long engaged in to utilize the land in that way that the olive trees were grown by the vineyards sometimes intermingled within the vineyards. It was good for soil conservation. It was also, the land was arable, able to sustain uh, the good growth that those trees needed in the places where these things were planted. So they grew really side by side. And so sometimes the picture is God's planted an olive grove. Sometimes he's planted a vineyard. But yet it is very similar because these, again, uh, these trees were, 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 were merged together in the consciousness of the people because these were plants that grew together. And they were you know, a, a, a good part of the, of the produce and of the diet and of the, the daily uh, things that the people of Israel enjoyed was the grapes from the vineyard, the wine that made heart, glad the heart of man, the, the oil from the olives as well as the olives themselves, the oil that makes uh, their face to shine, uh, celebrated in the Psalms. And, uh, so the oil and the grapes, the vineyards and the olive trees, uh, really they did grow together. So God viewed the, his people as a uh, green olive tree, beautiful, with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. Yahweh of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. It's an interesting thing to observe that the book of Jeremiah makes no reference to the covenant of God 
until chapter 11. There's one reference to the covenant of the, the Ark of the Covenant that's mentioned earlier on that there's going to be a time when the people will not remember the Ark of the Covenant. But no real mention of the covenant relationship. Although many aspects of the covenant relationship have been addressed and spoken to, the actual term covenant is not found in the first 10 chapters. But here in chapter 11, in the first 10 verses, you have, I believe it's six references. Six references to the term covenant. And uh, I want to read them to you. Each of these references, uh, we find in verse 2, here are the words of this covenant. So the covenant involves words that can be heard. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Um, and then it says in verse 3, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. Now, again, it doesn't mean necessarily that the words of this covenant, as it's read, haven't been heard. It's just hearing means doing. Hearing means obeying. In fact, the word of, uh, for, for obedience comes from the root for hearing. Uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We are to be obedient to that which we hear. God has spoken, and we cannot turn a deaf ear and a hard heart to his words, to his voice. And so the cursed one is the one who hears the words but doesn't do them. And hence, in, rea in reality, there's no real hearing. There's no true hearing where obedience is not, is not performed. So curses the man who does not hear and does not do the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. And then in verse 5, it speaks of, I'm sorry, it speaks of the oath that I swore to your fathers. And though that's not the mention of the term covenant, the Hebrew word berith, it does speak to the essence of what a covenant is. It's God's oath-sworn pledge. God has an oath-sworn pledge to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. And he's come and he's delivered them out of Egyptian bondage for the very purpose of bringing them into that land that he swore to their fathers. But it's obedience that's required of them. If they're going to receive this land, the land that he's going to evict the Canaanites from, because of their, their wicked practices, he cannot have the people that he places in that land to be doing the works that the Canaanites did. They cannot do the customs of the Canaanites or the customs of the, the people of the nations. They're to be his own nation, a people that do his, his word and his will that he would confirm the oath that he swore to the fathers. And then Jeremiah is told to proclaim all these words to the cities of Judah and to say, hear the words of this covenant. Again, covenants is founded words, things that God says, things that God promises, things that God commands. He says in verse 8, they did not incline or obey or incline their ear, Everyone walked in the stubbornness of their heart, and therefore I brought on, on them all the words of this covenant. Here the words of the covenant are the curses of the covenant. I think what it can be said is that every aspect of what makes a covenant a covenant can be called the covenant. So the promises are called the covenant. The instruction is called the covenant. The curses is called the covenant. All that God speaks is called the covenant. It's all part of the covenant. And 
It's all of one piece. What God has done for their deliverance is the covenant, part of the covenant. It's faithfulness to his promises. It's what he has instructed them. So it has to do with deliverance. It has to do with instruction. It has to do with blessings. It has to do with promises. It has to do with curses. All of that is called the covenant. And then finally, at the end of verse 10, it says, They have turned their back to the iniquity of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers, and therefore bringing disaster upon them, which was part of the covenant curse. So this whole section is filled with the thought of the covenant relationship, the covenant relationship that God entered into with the people of Israel. And again, it's that picture of Israel, that second generation in the plains of Moab that we find in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses is preparing to go into the land and Moses is setting before them what they must do. He says he sets before them life and death. He sets before them the way in which they will not duplicate the sins of the prior generation who were excluded from the land. Um, And I want you to see how this covenant renewal went in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 29. I think through the eyes of Deuteronomy 29, we'll see something of what Jeremiah was called upon by God to be doing. Uh, in the nation with the challenge that he was giving to the people of God uh, not to forsake the terms of the covenant, to return to the God of the covenant. Here we find in the plains of Moab these words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them in Horeb. So there was a covenant that God made at Sinai And that covenant he made at Sinai was in fulfillment with the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's all of one piece. It had to do with the possession of the land of the promise, the land of Canaan. God redeemed them out of Egyptian bondage. And you see how that that gets rehearsed in verse 2. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. What's he talking about? He's talking about the plagues. He's talking about the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians. When he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, it was through these great signs, these great trials, these great wonders that God did. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And that's absolutely vital. You need to have spiritual understanding and spiritual awareness. You need to have more than just the outward circumcision of the flesh. You need the circumcision of the heart that that circumcision of the flesh points to. But yet you do not have it. To this day, the Lord has not given you a regenerate heart. That's the problem. That's the difficulty. I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. 
Again, God redeemed them from Egyptian bondage through the plagues he brought upon the Egyptians. Now they have 40 years of learned experience being trained in the wilderness that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. To learn, to worship the Lord your God and him only to serve. To learn that they should not put the Lord to the test. They should trust him and trust his words. I led you 40 years in the wilderness. And I provided for you. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You've not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink. That you may know that I am the Lord your God. I, I gave you manna to eat daily. I gave you water from rocks to drink. You were dependent upon me. And you should have learned to trust me. And when you came to this place, Sion the king of Heshbon, Og the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle. But we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manassites. Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. I'll stop reading there, but just to say that God is being set before the people of Israel as the God who acted for their redemption, brought them out of Egyptian bondage, brought them out of the iron furnace, brought them out of the oppression and misery, brought them, as he says to them in Exodus 20, on eagle's wings, brought them to himself. And they ought to have been a people filled with joyful wondrous, rapturous praise. But any kind of praise they ever gave to God for what he did for them didn't last very long, did it? They began to murmur. They began to complain. This is a generation that should have learned differently. They saw the mighty acts of God, not only to their forefathers in Egypt, but 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they came to know and learn that God was a God who led them wisely, led them well, led them, providing for them, and they ought to have followed. And he was a God who also instructed them. You see, I think the nature of the covenant relationship, that there's two ways it could be viewed in, in Scripture. First of all, that God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel as a marital covenant, as a husband taking a wife and taking a bride to himself. Uh, that seems to be celebrated in chapter 2 of um, Jeremiah when he says, it speaks about the joy of their espousals, that Israel was holiness unto the Lord. They went after me in the wilderness. There was this bridal scene in which Israel was brought to God as, as a bride. And Yahweh loved her, delighted in her, uh, again, even still in chapter 11, calls her his beloved. There was this marital element to the covenant, the depth of his love demonstrated towards the people of Israel, that he loved them for the sake of their fathers and brought them out of bondage in love. And they should have celebrated that love and rejoiced in that love and basked in the light of the lavishness of that love that God had towards them. So it was one aspect of the relationship. And that seems to be emphasized when the new covenant is spoken of in chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, 31, where God says, A new covenant I will make with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness, 
which he says, my covenant they broke, though I was a husband unto them. There is that marital element to the relationship. It's like a marriage covenant. God taking a bride for himself, taking the nation to be his wife. Nation is also his son in another aspect of it. Uh, telling Pharaoh to release his firstborn son. But then the other aspect of the covenant relationship is the relationship of a sovereign, a king, a ruler, a leader over the people. When a great king would suppress a lesser king and he would come under the government of that empire called a suzerain, covenant love and covenant affection covenant relationship would be expressed and it's sometimes embarrassing to read those ancient Near Eastern covenants because you wouldn't think kings would be expressing such love towards their their vassals their nations that were to serve them and yet they felt as kings they had a great responsibility for these lesser kingdoms they became their protectors they became their defenders. If ever another empire was going to come and look to take over their territory that they were ruling, they would come to the defense of that lesser power. And God says, I will be that to Israel. If the Egyptians seek to bring you back under domination and under tyranny and under oppression and put you back into slavery, I will fight against the Egyptians. Just as I fought against Og and Bashan, and I will fight as you enter into the land against the Canaanites, and I will be your champion. I will be the one who will deliver you, and five will go against a thousand and will overtake them, because I am fighting for you. God is their, their, their leader. He is the one who leads them and provides for them and protects them and ensures their good because he is their king. And so this covenant relationship expresses both of those elements of a wise, powerful, competent, able king and leader over his people who loves them with the depths of marital love. That's who this God was to the nation of Israel. And he proved it to them time and again that he was that kind of a leader, that kind of a lover who led them in love. And yet again and again and again, they're running after other gods. They're turning against this source of all their good, this fountain of living waters to you out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. And yet God continues to send his servants, continues to send his covenant lawyers, the prophets, covenant mediators who come to the people, declare to them their sins, call them back to himself, offering them pardon, offering them peace, offering them the restoration of that relationship of joyful love in his presence. And Jeremiah was one of those covenant mediators. And I think, though, the picture in chapter 11 is that we're coming to the end of Israel's chances of heeding and hearing the words of the prophets and returning to their God. I think we're to understand Jeremiah has, is, not, is not new to the game. He's not just beginning to bring this covenant message to the people. He's been doing it probably since the days of Josiah. 
through the reign of Jehoiakim, through the reign of 11 years of Zedekiah, before the Babylonians come and take them into captivity. He's been at this work for decades, calling the people back to their covenant God. Reminding them of what God had done for them. Reminding them of the redemption that God had effected, bringing their fathers out of the fiery furnace, out of the iron furnace, he says in verse 4, uh, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. He was their redeemer. With a high hand and a mighty arm, he brought them out of their captivity, brought them out of their bondage, brought them to himself. And this redeemer was also their teacher, who has come to instruct them, who has come to give them the word of his commandment. And those things are not at variance with one another. Because you see, when, 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 when someone has taken you into their heart, into their love, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a king who embraces another nation to be a faithful servant of the people and leader of the people, the response of the people ought to be one of loyalty, one of allegiance, one of desire to give honor to the one who rules them wisely and rules them well and rules them in ultimately what their best interests are. Failure to do it is called treason. Failure to do that with regard to a wise and loving king is treason. Failure to follow a loving husband and to enter into other relationships with other lovers is adultery. And the people of Israel were treasonous against the Lord their God. And they were spiritual adulterers against his loving heart. Where there is a recognition of a loving leader, there should be a willingness to hear his words a desire to comply with his words out of love and out of loyalty, out of a sense of duty, out of a sense that anything else is treasonous, anything else is adultery. Where we ever got the idea that we could enter into a covenant relationship to God with God, get the benefits of his grace and salvation, and there's simply never any strings attached There's never any real call to discipleship, any real call to following God, any real call to loving allegiance and obedience, any call to marital loyalty. I don't know where that idea came from. But folks, it did not come from God's word. Now understand what the interest is. We want to take away from from people any thought of meritorious gaining of God's favor through works of righteousness that we ourselves have done. That cannot be. We can never earn God's favor. We can never provide a sacrifice that could ever put away our sins. Those things are impossible for us. God must do that. God must be the God of plenteous redemption. God must be the God who comes in mighty power and gracious love and provides what is needful for this relationship to exist. But because he does this, the there's an inescapable sense of loyalty and gratitude and love that needs to be reciprocated. It's like, again, lavishing your kids on Christmas Day with all of these gifts. And the kids say, 
oh well, who cares? You're just a bunch of stupid parents. That's what you are. They're stupid parents. That's usually the teen years when you get that stuff. <laughs> Everybody else's parents are better than you are. Than you are. But it's, it's, it's the madness of the teen years. It's the madness of just, you know, where the brains kind of seep out of the heads of our teenagers and it doesn't get restored until they're about 25 or 26 and suddenly they wake up. And they say, boy, what a fool I've been. But we teach our children gratitude because gratitude's appropriate and it ought to be felt. And it's wonderful and joyful when you see children responsive to the love that you've shown them. Thank you, Mommy. Thank you, Daddy. And that should be the heart of the people of God, the children of God, having that filial affection, that family affection, that affection of a son to a father, or the affection of a wife to a husband, or the affection of a loyal citizen to its wise and gracious king who leads them wisely and leads them well. And so in all of those relationships, there's always reciprocal responsibilities that come about. And it cannot be that God would be so irresponsible as to provide a salvation in which there's no sense of debtorship, no sense of... We're not our own. We're owned by another. We're responsible to love him. We're responsible to serve him. He didn't do that to Israel. And he doesn't do it to us today. There's just no way in which we can ever agree with those that simply say it just doesn't matter what you do after you're saved. As long as you're saved, you're going to heaven and nothing after that really matters. No, no. Everything after that matters to demonstrate the reality of that salvation, of that sense of God's work of love taking root in our hearts, where we reciprocate love. We love because He first loved us. The scripture doesn't say, He first loved us and we don't care. No, it says He first loved us and we love in return. We must love in return. And we've never tasted of the love of God. We've never drunk of the wells of his salvation. If the response is not, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm to glorify God in my body. There's to be that sense of responsibility that's placed upon us as citizens of God's kingdom. Not to provide some merit of our own. We have no merit of our own. No merit of my own. What's that song? My only hope is found in Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own that I can confess. My only hope is found in Jesus' blood and righteousness. For me he died, for me he lives. An everlasting life and life, light and life he freely gives. Well, that's true. That's true. It is no merit of our own. It's Christ's merit. It's Christ's righteousness. It's Christ's saving love. It's Christ's atoning blood. This is what his sought us and bought us and brought us to God but folks it's brought us to God <laughs> and it's brought us to God in a way that brings reciprocal loyalty and reciprocal love the loyalty of a citizen the loyalty of a wife to a husband the commitment that's brought born out of covenant 
That's what Jeremiah is seeking to persuade the people to render to their covenant Lord. Let's go to the cities and the streets of Jerusalem to proclaim this message, calling upon them to obey his voice. Nothing less is, is, is feasible. Nothing less is acceptable. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my voice. You will keep my commandments. Yet they did not obey. They did not incline their ear. Everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. That's the point of it. Where disobedience prevails, the only proper understanding is there's no new birth. There's no new life. There's no regeneration of the spirit. The people are dead in trespasses and sins. The people are not believing. Because if there was faith, there would be faithfulness. If there would be new birth, there would be life. If there would be life, there would be love. There would be light. There would be walking in truth and wisdom and compliance with God's will and ways. There would be desires for God and for conformity to his will. And there was not any of that. And hence the covenant curses come upon a disobedient nation to whom God again and again and again sent his covenant servant Jeremiah, calling them back to him. But they would not hear his words, and they would not heed his words. And now we're at the point of no return. The only thing that's left is the covenant curses to come upon the nation in full. And then Jeremiah is told to do something very, very, very difficult for a covenant servant, for a prophet, and that is do not pray for this people. Prophets pray. Servants of the covenant pray. Those that are called to be ministers of the new covenant pray for the people of God. And sometimes I think that's their principal ministry. I think sometimes we think that preachers, their principal ministry is to preach. But no, I think prayer is so vital. Nothing good ever happens where prayer is not engaged in. But here the prayers of Jeremiah are called upon by God to cease. Don't lift up a prayer on their behalf. I will not listen when they call to me. They're going to call upon their false gods. They're not going to hear them. While these people are calling upon their false gods, what are you doing praying to me for them? They're not even praying for themselves. They're praying to their false gods. They're beyond hope. They're beyond hope. They have the right to my house. There's no sacrifice that's going to provide forgiveness. There's no worship that can find acceptance. You can't exalt. You can't bring sacrifices. Your goodness was a distant memory. The Lord once called you a green olive tree. Once you were beautiful. 
At one time you had good fruit, and now you only have vile deeds. And hence, the olive grove is going to be torched. Destruction will fall. And nothing is going to avert it. And it's God's right to do it. He's the one who planted you. And he's decreed disaster against you. Not because he's mean. Not because he's hateful. But because you're sinful. And you're rebellious. And you're wicked. And you're sinning against his light. And you're sinning against his instruction. And you're sinning against his love. And you're sinning against all the manifest tokens of his goodness. The sending of his prophets. Rising up early. Going to proclaim his words to them. And they will not hear him. And they will not obey his, 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 his covenant instructions. It's because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done. Provoking me to anger by making their offerings to Baal. Again, with respect to Israel, it's a dim, a dismal picture. With respect to us as the covenant people of God, I think there's light in understanding that we can have as the people of God. Because whatever God did for Israel to make them in debt to him, it's nothing in comparison to what he's done in the new covenant. When you think about it, what did God do to redeem Israel from Egyptian bondage? He exercised power. Power. Power that brought the plagues. Mighty works, mighty signs, mighty works of power. A high hand and an arm of strength that brought them out of Egyptian bondage. And for God is omnipotent, I mean, he didn't lose anything by that. There wasn't really much of an investiture of strength and energy that went into all of that. There was sufficient expression of his goodwill and of his kindness and of his grace and of the fulfillment of the promises to the, you know, the, the, the patriarchs. All that should have registered something in the hearts and minds of the Israelites. But he didn't give himself. But for our salvation, that's precisely what he did. That's precisely what he did. For our redemption from, from servitude and slavery to our sin, God sent the Son of His love. He sent the eternal Son of God that was with Him throughout the ages of eternity to partake of our nature, to come in human flesh. It was an act of self-giving, an act of self-sacrifice that we could conceive of nothing greater, no greater love. I mean, we could conceive of greater power than what happened to the Egyptians but to bring about their redemption. But what greater love could God have displayed? Greater love has no man than this, that a man would give down his life for his friends. And I, I call you friends. And he gives his life for us. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He gave himself. He loved us and gave himself for us. And that self-giving of the Son of God ought to elicit from us self-giving of our own hearts, lives, energy, strength to him. We, again, we love because he first loved us. 
And he didn't love us just minimally. He loved us to the maximum. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. And we should be loving God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. And we don't just have a a commandment to do that. We have an example of how that is done, of God's own love to us. And so, you know, in the first place, what God has done for us in Jesus has not only displayed his love so fully and so repletely, but it's also taken away our sins and our transgressions that we could never have atoned for. And that Christ died for us. He died to take away our guilt. And we can never serve God perfectly. We can never serve God flawlessly. We can never serve God sinlessly. We're always going to sin. And we always have that sense that we've never done enough. And, you know, when you come to think that, you could just become despairing. But God doesn't say to us, that means you're an outcast. No, he says you're never going to be cast out. You're never going to be separated from my love. There's always a return back to him. There's always the confession of our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you really boil it down, this covenant is a greater covenant that holds forth greater promises and has a better mediator who's done greater things than the old covenant ever could have achieved for the Old Testament people of God. And this is a covenant that cannot be violated, cannot be broken. Its promises can never lose the, the, the fulfillment that God designs for it. What a blessing to be new covenant believers. What a blessing to have the new covenant mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Moses. It's not Jeremiah. It's not just some prophet that's looking to call us back by the influence of some moral imperative. Change your ways. Turn from your evil. Turn back to God. For this is a good thing to do. Yes, indeed. All that's true. But what a blessing to have one who is also ever living to make intercession for us, ever helping us in the pathway of obedience, one who is a husband to us, who's faithful to not just show us by his example, but to lead us by his hand, the one who comes to guide us with his eye and afterward to lead us to glory. We should be a people that are filled with not only that sense of obligation that old covenant believers ought to have had, and a firm basis for it, but even more, we should have that sense of obligation because of the greater blessings that we know and the greater provisions we've been given and the greater mediator that we possess that we find in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brethren, thank you for listening to me. My nose has been badly stuffed, but I'm hoping to be able to get some of this out here. <laughs> so let's conclude going with thankful hearts to the Lord, seeking Him together in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the blessings of the new covenant, that it's not a covenant that we can break because it's been kept by Jesus himself. We're thankful that it's a covenant that blessings are certain to us. They never can be taken from us. 
but we're thankful that they're also covenant blessings that are productive of good works, of loyalty and obedience, of love to you, of energizing us not to be um, disrecipients of blessings from above without any sense of obligation to you. Lord, give us to be, we pray, uh, those who hear your voice, receive your instruction, be guided by your counsel, be led by your hand, be obedient to you as our king, loyal to you as our sovereign, faithful to you as our husband, rendering to you the obedience the covenant people ought to give to their covenant king and their covenant husband, their covenant God. We ask you, Lord, to be pleased to hear our prayers, to give us wisdom and understanding in understanding the Christian life in the way in which Scripture itself sets it forth to us in these ways of understanding the nature of this covenant relationship that we have in Jesus. So we pray that you'd hear our prayers, you'd receive our thanksgiving for the blessings of another Lord's Day that we've been privileged to spend together as your people. Lord, we do not underestimate the privilege that it's ours to gather, to worship you and to learn of you. We pray, Lord, you'd give us many such times in the future, throughout the coming year. And we pray, Father, till you bring us to glory, we will be faithful to be seekers of you and to be servants of yours and to be endeavoring to render to you that obedience and loyalty and love that you seek from your redeemed people. So hear our prayers, be pleased to dismiss us with your blessing and strengthen us for all that is before us in the days ahead. As we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.